The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let me lay out again my vision for what these messages are. Um, it's really a kind of a codicil or something at the end of our teaching on spiritual gifts that we would understand the church properly. Um, basically, I desire to set before you the Baptist vision of regenerate church membership and that it's not really, I believe, a Baptist vision, but I think it's a biblical vision. If it were only a Baptist vision, I wouldn't teach it. But I think it's a biblical vision that the church was meant to be made up of believers. And as we've looked at that, we've seen that there is, and we talked about it this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, that the church is meant to be a display of the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities and to the world. And so we put God on display by good order and by the way we live our lives. But it's far more than that. And so I want you to understand in general just what these messages are intending, that, that there is a vision for regenerate church membership and that baptism is the entryway into that, believer baptism. Uh, that's the beginning of the Christian life. And as opposed to infant baptism, uh, which is seen in a covenantal sense, and there's some arguments for it, but we believe in believer baptism as the first sign of obedience, water baptism, the first sign of obedience when someone comes to faith in Christ. And then on the other side of that is church discipline, and that's what we're going to talk about, God willing, next time. Church discipline is done for certain reasons. It's a biblical thing, but it's mostly neglected. Uh, but Baptists were very strong in church discipline 100 years ago, and uh, it's good and healthy for the church. So this is how it works. Somebody comes to faith in Christ, they make a profession of faith in Christ, they are baptized in water. But uh, it's possible for somebody who uh, is not truly regenerate to say all the right words to convince a man, a pastor, for example, or a church that they're born again. They really aren't. Um, so how do we know? Well, it has to do with how they live after that, right? What happens after the baptism? What happens in the ongoing life? And so what I see is believer baptism and discipline as the kind of beginning and end. What's going on in the middle is what we're looking at tonight. What is the church life together? How can we help each other? What is the one anothering that we're supposed to be doing in the church? And last time I gave you a list of 16 uh, words, or 15 or 16 words, I haven't counted them, how many are there? A uh, good number, of things that we're supposed to be doing for each other. And we looked at some of these, and this has to do with a life lived for one another. But I want to bring you again to Hebrews chapter 3 and 10 to set before you the negative and the positive side of this church life together. We're supposed to be helping each other. And I think, I, I really believe as we go on in this century and as we see America drifting more and more away from the Lord and away from the Bible, the church as it's rightly established in the New Testament, is going to become more and more important. It's more and more important that we live a church life together. And we're going to feel that, aren't we? We're going to go out into that non-Christian, that pagan world, and we're going to get bashed all week long. And then we're going to come in here, and we're going to get refreshed and strengthened and encouraged and built up. And then we're going to go back out. What did Jesus say? Behold, I send you as sheep among what? Wolves. This world is no friend to your faith. This world is no help to you in the Christian life. Quite the opposite. 
Friendship with the world is hatred toward God, it says in the book of James. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so we're surrounded by this system that seeks to tear us down and attack us. And it does. And we need help, don't we? It's not just Jesus and me. And isn't that a good thing? It's not just Jesus and me. It's us and Jesus. Jesus and us. And we can help and really should help one another. Now, there's a negative and there's a positive side. And I, uh, The other day, I, I read through the whole book of Philippians with Nathaniel. We were at a church conference, and, uh, or at a uh, uh, preaching conference, and we enjoyed that time in Orlando, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and had some good time. And we got back to the hotel room, had a little time, and so we read through the whole book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, finally rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So I stopped him. I said, Nathaniel, what do you think a safeguard is? He said, I don't know. I said, okay. What's, um, you know, I said, he's 11. I don't know. Um, all right. What's, what's a guardrail? Well, it's a thing along the side of the road to keep you from going into the ditch or off a cliff. I said, all right, that's, all right we're on the right track. Would you say there's a relationship between a guardrail and a safeguard? Yeah, they really are kind of the same thing. I'm setting up a guardrail for you by repeating my teachings. All right? And so I think Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 10 are worth repeating. Look again at Hebrews 3 with me, beginning at verse 12. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, and Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, I think are the negative and positive sides, and I think that if rightly understood, they would transform the way we live together. And so I'm sharing with you the same things. This is the third time on Sunday evening. Hebrews 3.12 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. Do you see that? And so we have a corporate responsibility to each other. That's what these verses are, are teaching. See to it that none of you, brothers, has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Not just that you individually don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart, but that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Well, how are we going to do that? How am I to see to it that this brother or this sister doesn't have a sinful, unbelieving heart? That's what we're talking about tonight. How do we do that? How do we see to it that each other's doing well in the Lord? That is, it says in Hebrews 2.1, we're not drifting away, drifting away from Christ, or in this case, aggressively hardening our hearts against Christ. How do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us, but we have a corporate responsibility. Verse 13 says, encourage one another daily, so at least we are to be encouraging one another. Encourage one another daily, daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Isn't that powerful? Sin is tricky, isn't it? Sin's a tricky thing, and you have within the walls of your soul enough enemies to destroy you, don't you? Just within. And so as sin deceives you, as sin tricks you, as temptation comes, you can develop little by little a hardening of the heart. And what is your protection against that? Jesus and me? Well, in one sense, yes, but Jesus is going to work through brothers and sisters who love you enough to help you. And we're, to call, we're called on to do that. And so there's a negative side here, isn't there? We're watching over one another. In, a, in I think in this case, a negative sense. We're watching for evidence that there's some encroaching sin. There's some hardening of heart. 
and we're doing it for one another and we're doing it with great humility we're doing it with great gentleness but we are doing it that's what the bible says that we should do that's the negative side look at hebrews 10 24 and 25 for the positive side it says let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds all right that is that is incredible isn't it let us lay on our beds and think deeply about how we can help each other live a very fruitful life. Let's sit in a chair and with all electronic things off, let's just ponder deeply. Let us consider, let us meditate on how we can help each other be maximally fruitful for Jesus Christ. Is that what that says? Well, yeah, isn't it? Let us consider how we may do this. Let us meditate deeply on, let us think about how we may spur one another on, provoke one another. How do we do that? Provoke each other. Well, there's a telephone call. Hey, we've got the health fair coming up. Are you going to be there? Well, I was, uh, well, what are you going to do? Well, I had some plans. What were they? You know, we need you at the health fair. That's a spur, isn't it? It's like, ooh, you know, do my plans line up with the health fair? Is it, you know... And they may, and, and you know, not everyone's called to be there, but you know, there's a spurring that goes on. And why? So that when Judgment Day comes, you're going to have a lot of good works to show. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You see? Good deeds. That you may, be, you may have a full treasure trove to pour out before Jesus on Judgment Day. So that you can just be so busy in Christ doing the good things that he has for you to do. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God laid out in advance for us to walk in them. Isn't that wonderful? And so we help each other. We spur one another on in many, many ways. I would stand at the back of the church and somebody I, I didn't even know that well at all, really, shook my hand and said, stand firm in the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's all I said. Walked out. Thank you. I appreciate that. I felt a little soft, felt strengthened. We're supposed to do that for each other, aren't we? So we've got the negative side and the positive. Now, why did I do that? Well, these 15 words break down basically into one of the two categories. Either you're going to be coming in a situation where you have a concern that they are drifting into sin. All right, you're going to come with a certain set of words, depending on their situation. Or positively, you're going to be coming with words... Uh, a certain category of these things so that they can be maximally fruitful. You see how it breaks down into the negative and the positive side depending on the situation. And so the words are such things as correct, reprove, rebuke, admonish and warn, and discipline, and maybe exhort depending on how you look at it. Those would be somewhat negative. You would come at those, uh, you would bring those tools to a brother or sister that you worry about that you're concerned about. You come and you give them an admonishment. You give them a warning. You give them um, some training perhaps or if they've if you've already done that then you're going to give them a rebuke. These are things that are biblical. These are biblical concepts and yet so frequently neglected. That's the negative side. On the positive side we're going to be encouraging or praising, training, edifying, um, exhorting, honoring, comforting each other, these kinds of things. 
And so we need to come at we need to come at each other and come with each other, and we need to build each other up using these various things. Now, last time we looked at admonishment, we talked about that, and we looked at comforting, the way that we come alongside each other, and we looked at correcting. And uh, we I don't know if we began looking at discipline, but we're not going to do that tonight because we're going to have a whole night on church discipline um, next time, God willing. So let's look at edify. Now, edification is the concept of building one another up. Noah Webster in the 1828 dictionary put it this way, to instruct and improve the mind in knowledge generally, and particularly in moral and religious knowledge and faith and holiness. There's a sense of building up. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 3. And there Paul is talking about his ministry. And you know there's the context there in 1 Corinthians of divisions in the church and people, somebody's following Apollos, somebody's following Cephas, somebody's following um, you know, Jesus or Paul, uh, Apollos, whoever was their favorite leader. They're following, you know, and there's these factions. And Paul says, look, you know, what after all, in, in verse 5, he says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord is assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So here's the concept that the church is God's building, right? It's a structure. It's a spiritual structure, but it's a structure, and it's... And it's rising, it says in Ephesians, rising to become a holy temple in which God lives by its spirit, by his spirit. And so this structure, this spiritual building is rising all the time. It's getting higher and higher. It's quite a building project. God's been working on it now for thousands of years. And so it's rising. And so therefore, it says in 1 Corinthians 3.9, we are God's fellow workers. So what are we doing? We are working on the building. We're building it up. We're, we're building the structure up while we have time and strength and energy. We do that. And then it says in verse 10, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. So there's this sense of building up. You see what I'm saying? And so corporately as a whole, worldwide, the invisible church of Jesus Christ daily is getting built up. Some people came to Christ today. Isn't that exciting? We don't know where. We don't know who. But God does. And so some people came to faith in Christ. Others who were already Christians moved closer to Christ morally and, and, and spirit. They moved closer to Christ doctrinally. They grew up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ today. That should have happened to all Christians if the word of God's being faithfully taught. So there's this upbuilding. We are therefore to edify each other. And so Paul likens himself there to a, a worker. Um, I'll just read some other verses. You don't have to turn there. But in Acts 20, 32, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Isn't that great? I commend you to God and I commend you to this, the word. And the word is able to build you up. It's able to make you strong. I commend you to God. I'm going to give you over to God and to uh, the word of God. Also, Romans 14:19 says, Let us therefore make every effort to, to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. What is mutual edification? I build you up, you build me up. We're strengthening each other. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
That's what it says. So these are the things that we're going to do for each other. We're going to be edifying each other. The next word is encourage. Now, what is encourage? Well, it says in Hebrews 3.12, we already read it, or 13 says, we should encourage one another. Well, it simply means to put courage into you. To put courage into you. Uh, a non-Christian writer said one of the saddest things about this world is that one of the greatest things in this world is courage. Why is it sad? Because you only need courage when there's conflict, when there's trouble, when there's hard times. Well, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be hard times every day. And so we get broken down by that, don't we? And we need a courage booster. And where are you going to get that from? Why not a brother or a sister in Christ who comes alongside and says something to you or takes you off to the side and prays with you? And as a result of that, you have strength and courage to continue Noah Webster, 1828, says it's to give courage to, to give or increase confidence of success, to inspire with courage, spirit, or strength of mind, to embolden, to animate, or to incite. And so there's a, a lot of examples of this. Who do you think of in the Bible when you think of encouragement? Barnabas. What was Barnabas' real name? Do, 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 do. Joseph, that's right, a Levite from Cyprus, Acts chapter 4. Well, isn't that exciting? We had to just stay after and have a Bible trivia contest. Isn't that? Barnabas was a nickname. It meant son of encouragement. And he was just so known by this trait. He was just an encourager. And when you were around him, you just felt built up. You felt strengthened. You felt, you felt like all things were possible. And so Barnabas was that kind of a man. All things were possible. And we saw this in the Apostle Paul. You remember? Maybe you don't think of Paul as an encourager, but he really was. Paul was a tremendously encouraging person. And so he and Barnabas would go from place to place encouraging the new Christians, the churches that they had planted, to be steadfast and to stand firm in the Lord. Or during that shipwreck in Acts 27, they'd been, they'd been 14 days without food. 14, a long time. And, and he stands up and he gives them courage to eat and to live. He says, you're going to survive. You're, you're not only going to survive, you're going to thrive. It's going to be one of the most exciting times of your life. I was shipwrecked with Paul. I was there. Isn't that exciting? Well, I don't think he came at it that way, but I'm just saying, you will survive. An angel of the Lord stood before me and told me so. So keep up your courage, men, and eat something. It's been too long. You need to eat. And so he would give them strength and courage. We need to, uh, we need to help each other. Look what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn there if you would. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Paul saying to the Thessalonians there, giving final instructions. I tell you what, never skip the last section of, a, of one of Paul's epistles. There's a lot of little things in there, but those tidbits are so rich, aren't they? You can get so many insights into Paul and to his fellow workers and the things that he did. Um, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 5, 11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Encourage one another and build each other up as, as you are doing. Look back at chapter 4, verse 18. It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, what words? Well, you have to read the previous section. But what is he talking about there? He's talking about the second coming of Christ. Now, about those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, we don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to think what you do think, or what some people are tempting you to think, that those who die in the Lord are lost. How discouraging is that? 
They believed so much in the imminent return of Jesus Christ that Jesus would come back any moment, which is a good thing to believe, but they believed so strongly in that that people who died before that were at, at least disadvantaged. At worst, they were lost. And so if you believe that, if that was your doctrine, how would you approach a Christian funeral? The unbelievable grief. Worse than a pagan, really. Because you believe in eternal damnation. You believe in hell. And so they're going to the, the funerals of their relatives with just unbelievable grief. And he said, no. You tell me that doctrine doesn't matter. Of course it matters. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left to the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They're going to go first. They're at an advantage. First of all, they're out of this terrible world. They're done with all their suffering and strife and conflict. They're free. And second of all, they get to go first. So don't weep over them. Weep for yourselves. You're still here, struggling with sin. But someday you're going to be with the Lord too. Whether you're awake or asleep, whether you're alive or dead, you will be there if you're a Christian. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See how it works? We take the Bible, we take doctrine, and we bring it to somebody who needs it. And we say, keep going, brother. Keep going, sister. You're doing well. We put courage into them. Another word is establish. We are to establish each other. Look at uh, Acts chapter 16 uh, with me. I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to change that. Acts 16 is good, but Romans 16 is even better. And in the interest of time, boy, the clock is tyrannous, absolutely tyrannous, isn't it? Throw it out. Well, I can't do that. Yeah, just stick with it. Sorry. What does it mean to establish? Well, Noah Webster put it this way, to set and fix firmly or unalterably, to settle permanently, to settle or fix what is wavering, doubtful, or weak, to confirm. So you go into somebody who's weak, and this is closely related to a, another verb, which is to strengthen. We're going to strengthen each other. And in the book of, of Romans, chapter 16, verse 25, this is what's known as preaching vamping. Bill, it happens in preaching too. There it is. Acts, or Romans 16:25. it says, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writing by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. Do you write sentences like that? This is a doxology. But at the beginning, what is he saying? Now to him who is able to fix you firmly so you don't move. Who's that? Well, that's God. Jesus Christ. God is able to set you up so you won't be moved. And what will be moved? Everything else. Do you realize that? Everything will be shaken. Jesus is coming back and he's going to shake it all. Once more I will return and everything will be shaken up. But God can establish you. I remember one thing my systematic theology professor said. He was talking about German liberal theologians in the 19th century. And one of the things these scholarly types were doing was they were always trying to find a whole new way of looking at the Bible. They were trying to rock the establishment, right? So that for the next generation or maybe two, their paradigm, their way of looking at the Bible was the one, right? They're making a name for themselves. This is what they do. 
and they were always trying to rock the establishment. Everything was blown up and there was a new building put in its place because this guy came along and saw it all a new way, right? That's how that works. It's all pride. My systematic theology professor said, I'm not trying to rock you. I'm trying to establish you. Isn't that great? The Word of God establishes us so that we're not moved. We're not moved. We're not moved by temptation. We're not moved by false doctrine. We're not moved by discouragement. We're not moved by anything. We're established and we're strong. And we need to do that for each other, don't we? We need to establish each other. And is there any way to do that other than the proclamation of Christ? No, there's no other way. Everything else is shifting sand, Jesus said. Shifting sand. You build on anything but my word, it's shifting sand. So we're going to establish each other. That's just a great word, isn't it? How about forgiveness? We need to forgive each other. I must exhort, but let's do forgive first since I already named it, and then we'll get back to exhort. I'm going in alphabetic order. What, what about forgiveness? Is forgiveness important in the, in the body life? of? A, oh, absolutely. And why? Because sin is so prevalent. Sin is constant. We are, in fact, a sin factory. And if you don't think that you are a sin factory, you're not mature. I'm convinced of that. Because we are constantly churning out things contrary to what Jesus would have done. We don't see things his way. We don't, we don't have his mind. And so, therefore, we must forgive. I love this definition of forgiveness by Noah Webster. He says this, and this is the 1828 edition. You've got to get that book. It's just great. The, the definitions are all biblical. It's almost like a Bible dictionary, even though it's a dictionary of the English language. But it says this, To forgive means to pardon, to remit as an offense or debt, to overlook an offense and treat the offender as not guilty. And this is what he says, interestingly, the original and proper phrase is to forgive the offense, to send the offense away, to reject the offense. That is, to not impute it or put it to the account of the offender. But we have kind of transferred at that point to the person. We forgive the person, and that's okay. But for the most part, it was basically we've forgiven the debt. We've paid the debt ourselves. And isn't that the way the Bible speaks of it? Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me, said Peter? Up to seven times? That's not bad. That's pretty good. That's more than the three that the rabbis taught. So I'm going to double it and add one. How is that, Lord? Is that good? I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven times. All right? And then he told the parable of the 10,000 talents. And so you can see that Noah Webster got his definition correct. Because what it was, was that we are forgiving a debt. Somebody has done something to us, and we're going to pay that. We're going to cover it. And we're going to treat it, we're not going to impute it to their their record. Do we have to do this for each other? Absolutely we do. I think one of the best examples, biblical examples of forgiveness is in Genesis 50. Turn there with me if you would. And this is Joseph at the end of Joseph's life. And uh, Joseph has got to be one of my Bible heroes. Is he not great? I mean, just remarkable. What's that? All right. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. And there it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Well, how does that relate? That is anti-forgiveness. That's the opposite of forgiveness. To hold a grudge and pay back is the essence of non-forgiveness, right? So they're concerned. This is an issue of forgiveness. 
what if he does this? He's certainly in a position to do it, right? I mean, he's second in command over Egypt, of all things, the only place in the world that had food. This was a dangerous situation for Joseph's brothers. And you, re you realize what they had done to him. They had sold him into slavery. Some of them, they didn't carry the day, but some of them wanted to kill him. And so there was serious sin here. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left us these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Do you wonder if that really happened? I do. Do you think, do you think Jacob really did that before he died? I mean, these guys are shifty and tricky anyway. I mean, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Maybe he did or didn't. But either way, they're putting words in a dead man's mouth. I mean, that is shameful. Oh, right before he died, your father said, please forgive them. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of God, your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Isn't that powerful? The sensitivity. Why did he weep? Because of his brothers. He's weeping for them, for the state of their heart and for their fear. And his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? What a great attitude. It's not me. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not your judge. He is your judge. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. There's so much theology in that verse, I'll tell you right now. To accomplish what is now being done in the saving of many lives. Now, verse 21 is potent. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Do you see that? Why is that big? Well, turn back at Genesis 37, verse 3 and 4. Genesis 37, verse 3 and 4. And it says, Now Israel loved Joseph, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him a richly ornamented robe for him. Genesis 37, 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and look, could not speak a kind word to him. Do you see that? So the brothers couldn't speak a kind word to him. What does Joseph do in chapter 50, verse 21? He reassures them and speaks kindly and gently to them and provides for their needs. That is forgiveness. And that's sweet. And why do we have to do that in the, in the Christian body? If you don't do that, it's like gears. that There's no lubrication between them. That's engineering language, isn't it? It's like two people who aren't loving each other. <laughs> they're not getting along. And there just needs to be that forgiveness. And so Colossians says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have. And so you have to go to somebody and say, I, I forgive you from the heart. Bear with means put up with those things that are non-moral offenses. Right? Isn't that what it means? Their personality just rubs you the wrong way. There are people, but it's non-moral. You just put up with it. Bear with it, right? And then there are the moral offenses. What do you do with those? You forgive them. Bear with and forgive covers it. And that's what we do for each other. The word I skipped was exhort. What do you think of when you think of exhort? What is exhorting somebody? Yeah, yeah. Is that related to provoking toward love and good deeds and or spurring somebody on? I think it's a, there's a strong, you know, it's more than just encourage. It's kind of turned up a few. It's like, 
encouragement on caffeine, you know, like jolt or something like that. It's just, I just want to exhort you to be there and to do that. I think you need to do that. And we need to do that. We need to exhort each other. I'm just listening to these words at this point. The, the word honor, I think, is, is really important. I think there are time to honor each other. What do I mean by that? I think it's just a form of encouragement. We are to praise what's praiseworthy in each other. Now, I know we ultimately are praising God, but this is a biblical concept. Let me tell you what I mean. Philippians chapter 2, verse 29, speaking of Epaphroditus, it says, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Honor men like him. Have Epaphroditus Day at your church. <laughs> or Epaphroditus of the Year. I am not encouraging this, not at all. I'm just saying this is a biblical concept. There is a time for honoring something that's honorable. And Epaphroditus risked his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. And that's honorable, isn't it? And I think the thing is we take that and, and we go to somebody and we say, you know something, this is what I see in you. And I praise God for it. I praise God for it. And I, you know, we could hold it up as an example. Not for ourselves. Let another mouth praise you, not your own. Someone else and not your own lips, Proverbs says. We don't do it for ourselves. We do it for somebody else. Say, look at this. Please understand me. I am not recommending having plaques put up. I'm not. Okay? I'm just saying, with the words, we encourage each other and build each other up. Paul did it with Epaphroditus. He did it with the churches in Macedonia. Remember how he took them as an example of generous giving in 2 Corinthians and said out of their overwhelming poverty, they gave incredible amounts of money. And so he found what was praiseworthy and he talked about it. So we need to honor and to praise what's honorable and praiseworthy in each other. There are others, but I'm going to skip to one last one, and that is warn, warning. One of the things that Paul does frequently is warn. Noah Webster defines it this way. To give notice of approaching or probable danger or evil that it may be avoided. To caution against anything that may prove injurious. To caution against evil practices to admonish of any duty. Turn to Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. And I'll tell you what, in my list of 15 words, I found about six or seven of them that he does here in this list. One of them, for example, teaching. He does that. You know, teaching is one of those things that we do for each other. And he says, you know, I taught you publicly and from house to house. I did that. Teaching is so vital. You've got to have that teaching ministry. Teach and admonish. Um, but one of the things he does here is warn. Look at verse 31. Oh, actually, let's begin at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Keep watch over the flock. So what does that mean? Well, you're like a shepherd and you're over. Now, they're the elders, so they have a specific spiritual oversight. But that's what, he, what he's talking about there. And he said, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. What is he talking about there? I think false teachers. I really think that's what he's referring to. False teachers are going to come in and rip you to shreds if you're not careful. Be careful. Be careful, because it's coming. And then in verse 30, even from your own number, 
men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Wow, how powerful is that? One of you all, some of you will do this. And then verse 31, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. That is the warning ministry of somebody who really cares. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Do you have a lot of somebodies like that in your life? Somebody who's going to come along and say, you know something, I see a danger brewing for you. And I'm concerned. And they do it with tears. That means there's a genuine love there. There's no lording it over, but just I'm concerned for you. And I'm going to be praying, and I'm going to be watching too. And I'm just concerned about that. I, I think that's so vital, the warning ministry. There are others, and we're going to talk about some of them during our teaching on discipline next week. I guess if I can sum all of this up, we need to be a church together, don't we? We need to not be individual people this way. This is so American. No, we need to be Christians. We need to one another one another. You know what I'm saying? We need to teach, admonish, encourage, rebuke, correct, train, pray for, warn, praise, honor. All of these things we need to do for each other so that we can grow up to maximum fruitfulness and be protected from our own sin because that's what the church is called to do. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.